Hi friends, welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Reverend Jeff Campbell. Jeff is the General Secretary and CEO of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. He's an ordained elder from the New Jersey Annual Conference. I'm a huge fan of Jeff Campbell. Jeff has that rare ability to hold the reality of the moment and hope for the future in a non-anxious and positive way. Jeff has seen and heard a lot over his tenure, and yet he remains steady, focused, and open to what might be next for his work and our worldwide connection. In this interview, we talk about his journey into ministry, both as a local church pastor and as a denominational agency leader. We also talk about his friendship and work with the late Junius Dotson and the ways that Junius's legacy continues to provide a North Star for where we are and where we're heading. Jeff is the kind of leader we need in the continuing and emerging United Methodist Church. And I'm so grateful he was willing to join me on the podcast. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great conversation with Reverend Jeff Campbell. Jeff Campbell, welcome to the podcast, brother. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good to be here. Oh, man, I'm super stoked to uh, spend some time with you to hear your story and um so I start my interviews um, the same way. I just ask my guests uh, how they became United Methodist Christians, how God's provenient grace acted in such a way to bring uh, them into our church. So I'll start with that with you, Jeff. Tell us, take us from the beginning. All right. Well, <clears throat> um, I actually wasn't raised in the, in, the, in the United Methodist Church. I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church in Virginia. And uh, don't don't hold that against me, but I, I had a, actually a lot of positive experiences there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, amazing Sunday school teachers, amazing youth group. Um, but my introduction to the Methodist Church was I, I went on a mission trip with a local United Methodist Church. Um, uh, it, it was um, I guess it was like Redbird Mission kind of uh, piece, and. Um, <clears throat> With that, you had to, you know, do worship, you know, come back and tell about the trip and the United Methodist worship service. And um, I just I just felt like, OK, there's something different going on here. Uh, I kind of grew up with fire and brimstone and, and a lot of judgment. And uh, I immediately sensed uh, more grace. And uh, that really intrigued me about the United Methodist Church. So that was like a, a brief like planting of a seed there, went off to college, went to non-denominational churches and just whatever was closest to the college. But it wasn't until um, I was working for The Limited out in Ohio, um, kind of climbing the corporate ladder there, and we started attending the New Albany United Methodist Church uh, there in Ohio. And I was helping, I used to be a wedding videographer, so I was helping video the, the, the worship services. And I just felt such a joy every Sunday doing this work. And um, I just clearly had this feeling like God was calling me to essentially work for God full time. Um, and so I happened to be going to a Methodist church at that time. Um, so it was kind of like, okay, well, if I'm going to do ministry of some sort, what am I? Because <laughs> I was raised Baptist and I'm going to Methodist church. So um, my wife was raised Methodist. Um, so I went to a Cokesbury store and I found the Christian as minister, little, the red book that kind of walks you through all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. And then I also picked up like 
the John Wesley history book and the Charles Wesley history book and the, you know, all the what about Methodism kind of books. And I, I just remember uh, being on a, our back deck in the summer, just devouring these books and just like, this is who I am. This is, this theology is, is it. And uh, the more I read, the more kind of fire I had. And, and then I had to, you know, figure out what God was calling me to. It ended up being uh, uh, clergy, although I love the Methodist church kind of, there are so many options as you're, when you're called. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but, but that's how I was introduced. Um, I guess I also should say um, the pastor that married us was United Methodist and I just loved him. I thought the world of him. So when I was thinking about seminary, I called him and he said he went to Drew and I, you know, again, I just kind of idolized him. And so I was like, if Drew's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And, and helped that they offered a, you know, kind of full scholarship. So from Ohio to New Jersey, we went. And uh, there's many more stories there, but I'll let you ask the questions. Wow. Oh, man. I, and I always have 5,000 questions. Um, but I, I'm, inter- I'm interested, like, I also was raised in a Baptist uh, environment, National Baptist, but, um, and I, I just wonder, like, were there things that you got from that Baptist church that are that's still helping you in ministry today, like either individuals who mentored you or experiences there? Um, yeah, I, I think I remember most the Sunday school teachers mm. and um, <clears throat> and the amount of time we spent in the Bible. Like that was really helpful, particularly later and, and continue as I preach. I have this pretty deep, vast knowledge of the Bible that I would not have had, I don't think, if I did I wasn't raised in the Southern Baptist Church, because that's really the I mean their preaching is like verse yeah. by verse. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I learned a lot. I had two Sunday school teachers that um were just so passionate about teaching. One, it felt like every Sunday he went through the Bible from the beginning to the end. And it was like every Sunday. Mm-hmm. But he was mm-hmm. so passionate about it. It was fun to listen to him. And the other just just cared about us and just telling, you know, sharing a story and then hearing our stories. And those Sunday school teachers really uh, have always stuck with me. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess that would be it. So you're, you were working for The Limited. Was, was that a space that obviously it's not like a church? Um, it's not a it's not an organization focused on church people, but did you were there like these sparks of calling in you even in that space that like no I'm not going to preach at the board meeting or whatever but like it's in you it was it was it did you sense the call even back then or was that something that sort of took place um, later on? Um, <clears throat> I think I mean. When you look back on your life, you realize there were lots of moments where you had calls. So from yeah, yeah, yeah. summer camp, you know, in the Baptist summer camp, I definitely mm-hmm. enjoyed that. And I experienced a call there from the mission trips I took. Uh, any Anytime I was helping to lead in some way, I f- always felt some kind of joy there um, around God calling me, but you know, you, you, you don't really, you're not aware of it at the time. Um, the work at the limited, no, I'd say it was a very different work. It was customer service, which, so, I mean, I'm caring for people. Um, <clears throat> but no, I was climbing the corporate ladder. I was, I was the head of a, a call desk that we did all the computer problems, the pricing problems, any, anything the store would have a problem with, they'd call us. And so I kind of managed a group of people that helped with that. Um, no, I was really focused on climbing the corporate ladder. And right before I left the limited, I had just received a pretty big promotion that I had, I turned down 
and I said, I'm going to go to seminary. And I remember people not understanding that at all. Like one guy who knew I was climbing the corporate ladder, he was like, so you're, you're going into the church. Is there, is it like good money in that? Is that why you're doing it? And like, no, you have no idea. <laughs> um, and I remember the CEO coming up to me and just saying, so you're going into ministry and he, I could tell that he kind of admired that. Like there was something mm. like, okay, you're giving all this up for, yeah. So yeah, that, that, but no, I think the limited was a totally separate, separate thing. And I really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed Sundays more. Yeah. So you're at Drew Theological Seminary and, and your family's already beginning as well, right? Like you're married. Yeah. Yeah, correct. I had our first child. When I graduated Drew, I was holding our first child. So, yeah. And while I was at Drew, I got a part-time local pastor appointment. So I actually slowed down my my MDiv to, to do what I was thinking I was going to do. So I took on a church and kind of slowed down the MDiv process to serve that church as part-time licensed local what was that like what did you learn about yourself even in that first appointment as a licensed local pastor so much i I remember just feeling so overwhelmed and you know as you go you step into any church and there's always you, you start to discern where the struggles are and what the history has been. And I just remember, I remember saying to my DS, like this church needs an experienced pastor. This church does not need me. Like, I Mm. I don't, I don't know how to handle all these things that I'm, I'm witnessing. And, uh, and in retrospect, my being naive is actually exactly what that church needed. They needed they needed a space where they, you know, I didn't have any history or baggage that they had experienced in appointment after appointment. So they it was kind of a fresh slate for them too. And I was young and like I said, very naive. So I think the blame, the hurt, um I think they that gave them some breathing room too cuz they they had had a pastor who they really loved um die suddenly and so they were still mourning that they had another pastor that they loved and thought things were going really well um be reappointed somewhere but he didn't share with them that he asked for the appointment so they felt very hurt about that and then the next pastor at um, I think it was maybe Ash Wednesday told them that he was working on his real estate license or something like that. And then that he was done like on Ash Wednesday, kind of abandoned them. So they had gone through s- several really struggles and just like really wanting to, to get going and just feeling over and over again, hurt and and then I came in and they, so they're grieving. They're kind of mad at the system. Um, and I think it, it actually was good that I was brand new and didn't have all that baggage. So they kind of let go of all that, that they were holding on to. And I knew nothing. So I was learning as I went and they, they kind of, I think that was healthy for them. They, they took me under their wing and, you know, kind of showed me what, what they wanted for their church. And that was really, really helpful. And how long were you at this one congregation? So I was there um, seven years in total. Hmm. And I think if you look at the history of the pastors there, I think the longest a pastor had been there was three years. So I, I was one of the longest pastors about... So I was part-time initially, and then I was graduating from Drew, and they decided to take the leap 
to to full time so that I could stay. We did that. And then we, we had done a lot of ecumenical work with the Presbyterian church in town. And, you know, we were doing vacation Bible school together. Uh, Wharton was the town and it was just a small, small town environment. So everyone knows everyone two two square mile town. Um, so we were just doing more and more with this Presbyterian church. And so about uh, year four, the Presbyterian church was kind of landlocked in this tiny church. And they just said, we want to thrive and grow. We have nowhere to grow to. We're doing stuff with you. Would you consider merging with us? So we look, We worked on uh, a merger with the Presbyterian church. Um, and like I said, everyone knew everyone already. So it was kind of a beautiful thing. Um, and the, the two votes on each church was unanimous. They sold their building. And then we did a ceremony where we, we all attended their building, closed it. Then we all attended the Methodist church building and closed it. And then we like walked away from the church. And then I think we did some editing to the sanctuary where we brought in elements from their church. And then we did like a grand opening together. So we tried to make the space so it felt different and it felt new and ours and not you're coming to the Methodist building. Um, <clears throat> and that was, that was a wonderful thing. And, and uh, so I was a co-pastor for like the last couple years before um, moving to my next appointment. Um, that was just a, a beautiful thing to see that church. Um, go from that part-time place where I was licensed local to really thriving. And um, that felt really good. Um, it was, it was a good first experience. It, it really was. Wow. So at some point you're going to join the general board of discipleship. Um, and so I'd love for you to just take me on that journey from as you're leaving this merged congregation that's thriving, what what's sort of the journey that takes you uh, to the board? Yeah. Okay. So from there, <clears throat> I um, from there I I did a, a church planting training in Greater New Jersey, and I felt like God was calling me to plant something, and then Bishop Devidar called and said, I, "I have a large church I want you to go to next." And I was really kind of in turmoil with that because I thought I was going to be planting a church and I was kind of preparing and, and uh, you know, learning all about that. And I just, I prayed about that and I said, yeah, Bishop, wherever you need me, that's fine. Um, and so I went to this next appointment, but I, in my mind, I was planning on using all the planting stuff at this next appointment. Like it was mm -hmm. totally different from Morton's. It was this huge 25 square mile town, just huge town. And, and the church was in this tiny corner of the, of the town. So I had already kind of thought, um, I want to use this planting stuff to, to re you know, help this church turn around. Um, and that's what we did. We, um, it was a, a very older, you know, you think about your typical United Methodist Church. It was older, it was traditional, uh, and it was struggling. And so I went in and first, you know, did a lot of listening to where they they felt like God was calling them. And it was actually very similar to what a lot of churches say. We want younger people. We want more diverse people. We, we want, you know, a, a thriving a worship service again. Um, and in that discernment, I think we discerned first that we wanted to make the service more blended as far as the worship style to, um, to hopefully reach the next generations that wanted something a little more upbeat, a little less traditional. So creating a, um, a, a praise band at the time was kind of our first thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, that was that that next appointment, and I was I was there for four years, and so we were in 
year four of a turnaround, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I felt kind of the second call of, okay, you're helping churches. Uh, I felt like God saying, I want you to help more churches. But I didn't know what that meant or how, how do you serve to help more people. Um, and I forgot how I got to the Board of Discipleship website, but I did. And they had a posting for, it was um, Executive Director for Conference Relationships. And so I, I read that um, posting and um, I, I, went, I interviewed for it. They flew, they flew me down to Nashville. And during the interview, I remember feeling very similar to when I first had a, had my calling. Like I had this kind of welling up, like inspiring feeling. And I remember calling my wife after that interview and, and I'm saying, this feels right. Like this, this feels like what God's calling me to next. Mm. Um, and at that point, we had three kids now in New Jersey. And so the big question was, um, how do you break that to your kids? And I remember doing it by saying, um, uh, um, two girls and a boy, and the two girls at the time were, were in to Taylor Swift. And I was just <laughs> like, Taylor Swift lives in Nashville where we're moving. So, and, and actually Taylor Swift literally lived in the building right behind the discipleship building and like the top floor at the time. Of course we moved there and, and Taylor moved to New York, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so I, but I remember creating a PowerPoint and like pitching it to my kids. Cause I, I felt really bad about moving them. Um, but that's how I got to discipleship ministries. And, um, uh, that was 10 years ago. It was August, 2013 when we moved. Um, and I started out, my role was essentially visit all the annual conferences in the U.S., map out how they do discipleship. Is it a board of discipleship? Is it a conference staff person? Or how many conference staff people? How do they do it? Figure it out. You know, get all the contacts. Um, and so that's how I got to the board of discipleship. And that's how I started I'm going to ask a question that's sort of like a flip of a question I've already asked. Were there things that you um, learned at the limited that actually assisted the work that you did in these appointments leading up to going to work at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in, I was essentially in communications at the limited. Um, and I mean, I had to do a budget, you know, I had, I had people I had to oversee, I had to do, uh, you know, uh, regular annual reviews, you know, all the business stuff. Um, one thing that made me a better pastor, because I came into SBRC, uh, committee on lay leadership with a different kind of viewpoint. I also approached my administration work differently, like. As a pastor, some pastors are good with that and some aren't. Me being from the business world, I, I'm good at that stuff. Like that's what you do in the business world. <laughs> and I think we miss that sometimes in, in the church world. So getting your reports in on time, paying attention to who's coming and when, you know, writing down names, getting to know people, all that helped me in, as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And then at the limited, I was, you know, essentially communications for 500 stores. So fast forward to discipleship. Now I'm the conference relation person for 50 some, and and I think it was like 56 or 57 back then, annual conferences and all the people in all of those places that I'm trying to connect with in a deep and meaningful way. So the limited absolutely helped me with just organization, communications, um, basic technology, all that helped as I, you know, both worked in the local church and at discipleship ministries. Yeah. 
So when I met you back in 2018, um, I, were you, I think you were still in strategic programming. Um, but Junius Dotson yeah. was the CEO of Discipleship Ministries. And my sense is that you worked quite closely yeah. with him um, during his tenure. And uh, we all uh, miss Junius um, and continue to mourn his passing. Um, and so I'm just curious what it was like to work with Junius, what you remember, um, and even um, what you miss um, of working with Junius. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did, we did grow close. And um, Junius was such a visionary. And when he arrived, um, he was so far out front of the, the staff. You know, he was, he was leading us from way out front. And, um, mm. but that was his gift. Um, and I think what I, I learned, my role as Associate General Secretary for Programming was to listen deeply to what Junius was saying and ask him really good questions based on what he was saying and saying, how, how does this translate into the resources we're creating? Um, and in that process, I, we, we kind of got in sync and, um, see all the people was uh the product of uh you know six months of of prayer with with each other with staff some listening sessions with staff um just kind of hearing okay so we have this mission but how does it how does it how do we articulate something that we can hold on to um and so junius you know helped us figure that out together and then cast that new vision for see all the people um and i think it was it was such a almost a blur because you know he was saying let's do this and my job was to make it happen right so he would say i think we need to do this and then i would make it happen and um and we're creating not not i mean we were creating resources but we were trying to create a movement and the resources were supposed to just support the movement hmm. and hmm. be a different kind of resource that anyone could take and contextualize because hmm. the idea that we were the experts in nashville was kind of ridiculous and so that was the shift was how do we take best practices, what we're learning, put it in resources where people can digest it and then make it their own? And I think that's the strength of the See All the People resources. And Junius was just a generous leader too. So he included me in so many ways. That's probably where I met you first was just him inviting me to go where he was going whether it was connectional table or the next GCFA meeting or whatever. Um, I remember him inviting me with him. And then kind of the next time he would just say, can you go instead of me or on my behalf, go, go and represent me. And that's where I was learning a lot of, you know, going from the second chair to representing Junius, you know, he was just a generous leader in that way. And, and you're right. The, from the diagnosis to his passing, it was so quick. And I remember him calling and just saying, Jeff, I need to, to take care of my medical situation. Could you step in for a couple months? I think is what was asked. Um, I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever you need. That's, that's fine. And I remember again, being pretty naive and just saying, kind of creating a process like, okay, I'll keep you in the loop. 
but I don't want to bother you because you're doing, you're working through the medical stuff, but I want to, I'm like, you know, anything major, I'll let you know before I do it. And even in that, he was very generous. Um, so I think most, most of us felt like it was, he was going to two months, he was going to go and get the treatments he needed and then he'd be back, you know? Um, and I remember talking to another Derek, um, Mm. Um, who said my father had this diagnosis and he was gone in two months. And I mm. had that conversation at the beginning of those two months and it was like two months exactly. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, it was really challenging for the whole staff. Um, and for me as well, I'd say it's only recently that when something really good or interesting happens, I haven't like, oh, I want to text Junius or, you know, mm. for the first six months, that was like a, a knee jerk, like, uh, you know, I should, I should tell Junius. Um, so that was, that was really challenging. And I, I would say, I mean, we just had our Christmas party at Discipleship Ministries. It was a kind of a good spirit about it. But someone said, I, I think we've turned a corner. Like it's taken that long to fully mourn. Uh, I'm rewriting the See All the People primary resources now and uh, that that I worked with Junius on. And uh, it's like, yeah, his legacy keeps going. It's kind of a, a beautiful thing. So, Wow. And so you went from filling in for a couple of months to acting general secretary. Yeah. And, and now you are the general secretary slash CEO of discipleship ministries. Um, what do you feel like is primary for you? And maybe it's the rewrite of see all the people, but what do you feel like is primary for you in your role in this season? Um, well, I think one thing is to continue to keep the local church and those that we serve in the center of all that we do and to make sure that that is leading discipleship ministries with what, what we do. Um, my role, I, I think my, uh, yeah, I'm rewriting to see all the people pieces. I think my role is to keep helping us come back to the idea of movement and not institution, which is so hard because we have such long-standing institutions. Um, and and I, I think that's what the staff of discipleship is getting from me is that it's it's all about those that we serve listening deeply to those that we serve praying deeply about where god is calling us next um and we've i think we've created some really healthy systems at discipleship ministries and and hired continue to hire healthy leaders that move us in that direction and um, I'd say the global nature is something that I, I've been praying a lot about. I, I spend a lot of time meeting with, uh, Africa, uh, college of Africa bishops and hearing, a, you know, similar to what I did way back with the U S annual conferences. It, I just spent a deep dive with all of the African bishops and hearing how they do discipleship and, um, so I think part of my vision is helping us be better for the global church. Um, and do it in a healthy, non-colonial kind of way. Uh, there's still, there's so much that the U S church can learn from central conferences. 
that I hope we can be a part of sharing those stories and those models of discipleship. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, keeping us moving toward a global, global discipleship ministries, but in a way that, that, I don't know, create, you know, helps to support what's already happening in central conferences, create systems that, that help them grow to what the next thing God's calling them to, and probably post regionalization, um, some form of discipleship ministries that is, you know, embedded in the local and run by the local leaders, something we can create, but hand over in a healthy way. Um, so that's kind of, kind of the vision. I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but, uh, that's that's where I feel God calling. I, I think that it it's in the beginning stages. That's why I'm rambling because it's like what I'm hearing bits and pieces of God calling me um, mm -hmm. to to support. So I don't know if I answered your question on that one or not. Oh no, you totally did. And I, I <laughs> it's interesting. I can actually see as I as I, you were beginning to like even pause to answer the question. I could see like okay, let me turn that wheel to actually like articulate something here, um, which is um, from my, for my part, really cool that you as the general secretary, you're literally trying to articulate something we've not seen yet from discipleship ministries. And that's, yeah, that that that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, let's take a quick break. So, Jeff, I usually ask my guest. Um, where they were and 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 uh, how they experienced the special session uh, of general conference in 2019, and you know it's it's a bit of a historical marker for me. I, I feel like there was the UMC before the special session and the UMC after the special session, and there are many historical markers for us, but that was one of them for me, and and it's a a, a historical marker that I. I'm still getting my head around um, of what happened and what we all took from that space and how that is, at least from my perspective, how that's still influencing um, who we are as United Methodists. Um, were you present for the special session? Were you in the room? I was, yeah. Yeah. So to the degree that you want to share, and I recognize that you are a your own person, Jeff Campbell speaking for Jeff Campbell, and yet also <laughs> you run one of our agencies called Discipleship Ministries, and so um, I recognize that there's a, uh, a, a a a a bit of a dance that you have to play sometimes in these kinds with these kinds of questions. Um, but let me ask, like, what was your personal response to the passing of the traditional plan? Yeah, I was, I was deeply disappointed. I, I to say, it, like, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I as I reflected on twenty nineteen, um, what we had created was a system of winning and losing around legislation. Yeah, and I remember yeah. sitting in at twenty nineteen, and I, I the whatever the first you know typical co controversial piece of legislation that came up. I don't remember what it was, but it was essentially in my mind, I was thinking this is going to tell me to vote count for everything going forward. Right. Cause that's what we do. It's winning and losing. And that particular legislation went the way that I would not be ha happy about. And I just went, uh, that's not good. You know, and then I remember Tom Berlin presenting 
you know, leading up to the one church. And um, I just kind of knew, I already knew that, that, that the votes, you know, where they were going to fall. And I, I was just deeply disappointed. Um, I thought at that time, as many of us did, that we were moving toward a different place where the global delegates were beginning to understand the U.S. context better and the struggles that we have um, and the harm that the, the current language creates for mission and ministry. Um, so to not only not remove that, but then to kind of double down on everything and in my mind, make it all worse. It was, it was horrible. Um, and this is not, this is not a, a surprise or an outing. My, my oldest is uh, non-binary and, um, and my oldest, who's, who's a very devoted United Methodist and Christian, when they, when they wrote their college essay, I remember them saying something like, I was a Christian before I knew I was gay or something like that. Um, so they're deeply United Methodist. So they're following 2019 as well with hopes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, and to be texting with them as it's happening and they're deeply disappointed. And like, what does that mean dad for the United Methodist church? And then I remember Back in the office afterwards, I remember Junius would, he would come in. I always loved, he would just come in and sit. And then it was like this <laughs> moment that I had Junius and we could just talk. And it was, I remember very well, he sat in my, my office and um, I was just sharing how disappointed I was. And I shared about my oldest being non-binary. And I remember him saying, Jeff, um, the African-American church has been living with disappointment and harm in the system for a very long time. And we've learned patience and resilience, and we just have to keep working in the systems to make them better and make them work for all people. So I think Junius, in, in Junius's wonderful way, was just saying, we keep working. You know, we keep Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he kept doing with the protocol. Um, mm -hmm. Just how do we keep moving forward and keep helping God do God's thing? Um, mm. And I think Junius and I were a lot alike in that we, we don't, we wouldn't get overly emotional or we would acknowledge what happened. And then we, we kind of, we take a quick moment <laughs> And then we're like, okay, now how do we, how do we keep fixing it? How do we keep working on it? And that, that's kind of how we were. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a good thing as a leader. There's also a, a bad side and that we're not always, we're ready to move on. And there's people still mourning something, you know, so that was Junius and I, we connected on that level. Um, sometimes we were moving too fast and we needed to help people along. Yeah. Uh, so you know, but that is also a gift. Junius said, said, "Okay, we're we're recognizing this moment, and we're mourning. We're absolutely struggling. Okay, but now we need to shift and get back to work and 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 make the systems um, healthy for everyone. That's what we're always working on. And I'm really I'm grateful for Junius for that conversation. Mm. And I remember going back to my then daughter now identifies non-binary and saying, this is what my, my boss boss said, shared with me. And my daughter at that time uh, was very um, active in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And so that helped them tremendously. Like, just like, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a process. It's a struggle, mm. Uh, mm. but it's not new. It's not yeah. new for so many people. So. On several levels, I appreciate the response you just gave. And I, I think on one, 
on one hand, um, I'm so in agreement with Junius in this sense of, oh wait, you're, you're disappointed in a system that only sees a specific person. Right. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you got a big family to join now. Like, That's come right. on in. We've been pissed a long time, come on in. Yeah. And we're still here. We've been pissed a long time and we're still here. That's right. Um, yeah. And so I really appreciate that. And and I appreciate him being willing to say that to you. Me and too. to not um, be distracted by the feelings of that moment. Because that, that part's quite easy to and reasonable. But sometimes those are the kinds of words that we often need to hear in in these, you know, big earthquake moments of transition. But the other thing I appreciate about your response, Jeff, is that it, and this will make sense when I ask my next question, your response to the traditional plan passing was personal. You have a you have a child who is directly impacted, whose life in the United Methodist Church is impacted because the traditional plan passed. And I wonder, even you know, in my role as a lay leader in Florida and serving in multiple spaces. I sometimes struggle to acknowledge the personal impact of many of the things that happen in our church, mostly because I'm an Enneagram five who doesn't like big emotions. And so I just don't want to bring it up. But also I, I struggle because I, I do wonder like, will it, will it overtake me that this isn't just about the system. This isn't just about the book of discipline. This is about me. This is about people that I love, right? Yeah, so it just, wasn't just it wasn't just my oldest though. I went into twenty nineteen. I mean, every every place I've served, there's been ongoing pain. I almost didn't. I almost didn't become United Methodist on on this. And at the time, at Drew, when I was kind of discerning, like um, my good friend Mark Miller, who was constantly working mm -hmm. i i looked at mark and i was like if mark can be united methodist and work in the system to fix things then i can too and then um you know one of my the first church again one of the most painful things that happened in that church i had a my leader of my ad council um i had just gotten there and they had this meeting with me and I didn't know what it was about. And they just said, um, just so you know, I'm gay. And if you want me to resign from council, I will. Like they didn't know me at that point. And I just remember like being really taken aback by that. Like, um, like I'm so sorry you felt like you needed to come to me and offer to resign. Like what a, what a horrible system, right? So that all along the way, there have been people like that who, who are working, just loving, lovingly serving in a system that isn't um, loving to them. It's a, just a heartbreaking thing. But those people are also the ones that, you know, beyond my own child. But um, it's a lot. It's just a lot of people who are just trying to be good United Methodists in a system that isn't always good to them. So. Mm. So what's been the impact of these last few years on discipleship ministries? Um, you know, passing of the traditional plan, the immediate response from annual conferences in the U.S., kind of, not kind of rejecting the traditional plan. Um, and then you you probably had this interesting seat watching the protocol come together um, with Junius a part of that. 
that space, but then COVID um, and the, you know, delaying and rescheduling of general conference many times. Junius yeah. is passing and then the eventual launch of the GMC. And then we've been in just this, this seasons of disaffiliation. Yes. Um, what, what's been, and that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I just, I covered a whole saga there. Um, what's been the impact of all of this on discipleship ministries? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's a lot. So I guess protocol, you know, I just witnessed Junius again. He, he took a moment and then wanted to be a part of the solution, wanted to be a part of helping God move things and conversations forward where it all seemed very impossible at that moment. And so I think Junius was really thinking out of the box and trying to use opportunities like this protocol conversation to create a space for new conversations. Like, is it possible that we can get unstuck? Um, so to, to essentially hold the fort down while Junius was working on that was uh, really interesting. And he would come and sit in my office and kind of give me updates and, I knew he was doing really important work there just to create the space so that people could have the conversations was really important. Um, just so, you know, deadlocked and all, all the things. So, yeah, that was interesting. Um, COVID, you know, um, discipleship ministries during COVID um we a lot of our staff our staff are the resources so they go and do trainings in districts and annual conferences um so to have all of that shut down uh was one it actually we stopped traveling and then we we had always done an online resourcing we we had been doing that but it was like all of our energy just went into the online piece. And I remember reflecting with staff, um, um, just thinking about all these small churches, which is a majority of who we serve, um, having to go online, you know, having to do technology in a way they had never been asked to do. And I was really proud of our small churches across the country who stepped up, who learned how to use their phone and Facebook and YouTube and all the different things of streaming, who began doing prayer online. I mean, um, I'm really proud of the older folks in our congregations who had never, who did not want to do technology, but because of ministry, learned it and started doing it. It was kind of the jump start we needed, and I hope we don't go back. I hope we keep doing those things because yeah. they started reaching people that they never reached before. It was kind of a beautiful opportunity. Um, but I think the the really dark side of COVID was that whole, you know, that our health became politics. And I heard a lot of stories around churches where whether or not to say you have to wear a mask or not became not a health issue anymore, but a political issue. And I could not imagine being in the local church with COVID and with the politics going on in that moment. Uh, really challenging, I think. Uh, what else did you mention? Um, well, we also had um, George Floyd's um, murder mm -hmm. in the midst mm -hmm. of that. And I remember pulling the staff together there just to reflect on that. I mean, that was like traumatic. I mean, and what do we, how do we resource that? How do we help churches with that to process that? So that was a big piece right after COVID or still during COVID. Um, and I think that began to shift our, our strategic priority toward explicitly anti-racist discipleship. Like it's not enough to have a resource, one resource. Mm -hmm. we, the staff mm -hmm. conversation was how does this 
of become part of all that we do? And how do we start to lift up? No, no, no. What it means to be disciple is to be explicitly anti-racist and to help our people live into that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing that happened right after. Then the launch of the global Methodist church. um, My reflection on that is that this, this has become a clarification of what it means to be connectional. Who believes in the connection? Who doesn't? Being part of a connection is ensuring that the connection is strong and it's working at all levels of the church and it's working for everybody. I think prior to the launch of the Global Methodist Church, probably for decades, we had not been doing that connectional work very well. I think it was steadily eroding connect what connection was. Um, and so I think we had lots of churches becoming congregational or independent and, you know, saying, what does the connection do for us? Right. I think all that was happening. And so the launch of the global Methodist church, I think it just revealed who, who was connectional, who wasn't. I mean, yes, it, it was also the LGBTQ issue. I think that was actually used by a lot of churches to just say, we just don't want to be a part of, we just don't want to be connectional. Yeah. Um, That's been my reflection. And that, Mm. that's kind of, I think where we need to spend our energy next is what does it mean to be connectional? Yeah. There's so much that it enables uh, missionally that we can't do without it. So we either have Mm -hmm. to say we believe in it or we don't. Mm -hmm. But I hope Mm -hmm. the result is the 75, 80% of us left behind, (laughs) the United Methodists. Mm -hmm. I hope we say we strongly believe in connection and Mm -hmm. this is who we are and we believe in it. We're going to renew it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope our leaders take that up because I can tell you I learned it from Bishop Devadar. Hmm. I learned what being connectional meant early in my uh, tenure as pastor from Bishop Devadar, who not only said pay your shared ministries or your apportionments, but told, told you why, told you what impact it had, told you all the ways that it helped the greater church and the global church all, you know, t- said the why and taught me to be connectional Mm. and i will forever be grateful for for bishop devadar for that um and i hope more of our leaders when they hear people saying things that aren't connectional just kind of lovingly correct them like no that's not who we are this Mm. is who we are and this is why we we need that to to build up the connection um and, and those of us remaining just need to do a better job reflecting on what it means to be United Methodist um, in this moment in time. Was there anything else you asked? I, I don't know. No, that was that You totally went right down the road. So, so yeah, there you go. I, I was going to say, what, what is our part in it? Right. Discipleship ministries. So we're working on resources that help us with that. You know, just what is a United Methodist disciple? Um, what do we believe about baptism, communion, um, just the basics. Um, so we're trying to create resources at this moment in time that help everyone clarify that and get excited about that. Of course, uh, as I mentioned, explicitly anti-racist, welcoming of all, global, diverse, um, just trying to reflect the beauty of God's creation. That's uh, probably climate crisis. I think that's a huge uh, piece. Migration, refugees. Um, I think we have something to say around global poverty and food sustainability. I mean, the Methodists, we're, we're practical theology, right? It's let's put our faith into practice. Let's make a difference. That's who we are. Let's get back to that. 
uh, and I think we can, we can, um, we can be the disciples God calls us to be. So Jeff, we are getting ready to have General Conference 2020 in April and May of 2024. Finally, I was talking to someone and they were like, I hope it's going to happen. And I was like, oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> like I pointed at them. I was like, it's happening. Like this right. is happening. <laughs> right. I hope it's happening. Um, from your seat, from your perspective, what does General Conference in 24 need to be about? Um, do you have the whip count? Do you know what that, uh, what the, <laughs> I'm going to be watching that first piece of whatever that legislation is to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but seriously, I mean, I, the social principles piece, I, I hope that goes through that kind of traveled the world and it's just, that's a huge part of who we are. So I hope that goes through. I hope regionalization goes through. Um, I think that's just healthy for our global denomination and moving away toward away from colonialization and those kind of pieces. Um, I hope we repeal the traditional plan and remove the harmful language. Um, <clears throat> I hope we can, the 2024, which is the 2020 general conference, I hope we can get back to, um, I hope at the end of it, I hope we come out saying, we have a new way of disagreeing with one another or when we disagree. I hope there's a healthy process at the end of that because, because we're, there's always going to be disagreements, but I want the United Methodist church to, to model. How do we do that in a healthy way, in a loving way? Like, I think the world needs that right now, not just in the U S so as we come together at this general conference, I hope we can, you know, deeply and lovingly disagree at times, but then lovingly come together about the things that we all feel passionately about, about making a difference. That whole list that I think we're called to as disciples. I hope at the end of it, we can really feel like we're creating a new way, a new system of coming together and disagreeing and agreeing um, and how United Methodists do that. That would, that would be good. Mm-hmm. Jeff, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? I do. I do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My kids get so sick of me telling them who's a United Methodist. Did you know that so-and-so is United Methodist? <laughs> um, I love it. I think some of the best things going on in the world are generated by disciples who happen to be United Methodists. I think we have a good, we have a beautiful core of theological beliefs that's tempered with practical theology that the world really needs. Um, Yeah, I, I think from the time I read those early primer texts on Methodism, it's still the same amazing faith that transformed England and, and beyond uh, at a time when there were quite violent revolutions going on, right? I mean, the Methodist way is a, is a beautiful alternative um, grounded in love and all that we do, love and grace. And the world needs that. So yeah, I'm I'm really hopeful if we can uh, if we can all constantly be reminded of what what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be United Methodist. Um, I think the United Methodist Church will continue to to make a, a huge difference in the world, and I'm I'm excited about that. Mm. Jeff Campbell, I just really appreciate. Um, many things about you, but I appreciate your ability to hold 
the reality that we're in with this sense of hope in the future. And you, you, you just hold both of those so well, um, which I think is one of the outcomes of a disciple of Jesus, this ability to live in a world that is uh, the kingdom and the kingdom of God here and not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that we are working towards something that we have not seen yet, and yet we sense it, that it's already among us. And I just appreciate that you are an embodiment and an example of what that looks like. So thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for everything that you shared. Um, Just really, really meaningful today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.